This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's a Friday in July, and usually that means we're thinking about baseball. And on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, we are thinking about baseball. We have the longtime veteran Indians writer Paul Hoynes and his editor Dave Campbell on for discussion today. So let's get to it. What do the dean of Indian sports writers, Paul Hoynes, and his editor Dave Campbell predict for the team this season? We're all waiting for some kind of diversion to take our minds off the coronavirus. I get notes from people every day saying, can't we talk about something other than coronavirus and national unrest? So Paul Hoynes and Dave Campbell, let's talk about baseball. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. We also have Laura Johnston, a regular on. Jane Cahoon and Chris Warnowski are, uh, are missing in action while they enjoy some of this summer weather. So so let's start right out. What What are we expecting from the Indians in this shortened season? Are we going to see brilliant strategy because this is a sprint instead of the normal season-long marathon? Will we see things like short pitcher rotations? Or what are you expecting? Go ahead, you know, Yeah, Yeah, Chris, I, I think uh... – you know, I think that the strength of the, the Indians is pitching. And I thought at the beginning of this, uh, you know, when they had tra- the spring training too, that it might be short pitching. You know, they, they use two or three starters uh, per game. But I think these guys have, you know, done a lot of work before they came to camp. And I think um, that the starting rotation, the starting pitchers at least, are going to be able to go, you know, normal length. I, I'm not talking about seven or eight or nine innings, but probably five, six, seven innings right out of the, you know, at the start of the season. And that should play to their strength. You know, well, I, I have a column about what you've done during the laps that's running Saturday about how you covered youth baseball. But one of the things I asked you is what you expect. And you, one of the things you pointed out was that the Indians didn't wait for spring training, too, that they had been working out independently for quite some time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, their, their, their plan was, I think, probably around the end of April, you know, instead of, you know, after spring training one had been shut down. Uh, their plan was, you know, instead of just, you know, having their players work out with really no uh, end, end date in sight, they set a date. And, uh, you know, they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure out that maybe the end of June, the start of July is, gonna, is, is when we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, our spring training will start. So those guys have been training, you know, you know uh, it, like they were in, in training camp. And they've, they've been in contact with their pitching coaches through Zoom calls. Um, and they really, I think, uh, they kind of hit the ground running here for spring training, too, at Progressive Field. And we'll see how that works. You know, it, um, But I think it was a good plan. And I think the pitchers came in. It's not like, you know, you, you had to build up the pitchers like in a normal spring training, two innings, four innings, six innings. These guys were going like four, five, six innings, you know, in their first couple starts. So you've been doing this for 37 years, and every time you've done it previously, you've been in a stadium filled with people. Well, not every year filled with people. There have been a lot of years, I guess, where it was mostly empty. But 
Now it's going to be empty. I mean, what, how do you, won't that seem eerie to be watching professional baseball without the crowd and the, and the normal t-shirt nonsense and the hot dog races, or maybe they're doing the hot dog races. I don't know, but what do you, what do you think that'll be like? It is strange. It is really strange because, you know, watching the inner squad games this, this past week, uh, they piped in crowd noises, but it's just, it just, it's surreal kind of, it, it looks like the games really don't count and these games don't count, but I'm sure it's going to feel the same way when the regular season starts. It's just eerie. You know, every, you know, Logan Allen said, uh, you can hear the, the catcher's glove pop on every pitch and that, you know, that makes the pitchers feel good because it sounds like they're throwing a hundred <laughs> miles an hour. And, uh, and every time somebody, you know, it hits a ball, it echoes throughout the stadium. So it sounds like it's, you know, going 10 miles. So in the, in that regard, I guess it's good, but it's just a strange, strange feeling. It's like, you know, watching a B game at 10 a.m. in spring training in, in Arizona. So if, if somebody hits a long ball, hits a home run, do they turn up the volume on the crowd noise to make it sound like the crowd is into the game? Yeah, you know, they've got uh, – they do that. They've got – you know, with uh, uh, the Jose, Jose, Jose chant for uh, Jose Ramirez when he comes <laughs> to the plate. They all have their walk-up music that's that's still played. Uh, I think they're going to pipe in John Adams drumming from the uh, from the bleachers when the game starts. So they're trying <laughs> wow. to do it, you know. So, but it, it is still a it is still a strange experience. Have you noticed that there? Because look, look, let's face it. This is all now for an audience that's watching on a screen because there's nobody there. Have you noticed them doing other things, or do you think there'll be more camera vantage points in the in the ballpark so that we can get a better view at home? You know, that's a good question. I, I do not know because you know, the, as far as I know, the TV and the the radio teams aren't going on the road. They are going to be uh, calling the games from home here in Cleveland and uh, they're going to, so they're going to do it remotely. So I don't know how many camera angles they're going to have, you know, at, uh, at the away parks. So that's, you know, that's going to be interesting to see. Dave, this is the first time we are covering a season where we won't largely be on the road. Um, we can't do in-person interviews. What's your strategy for bringing this game to our fans who are starved for sports information. We've seen even in this long period without any sports, our sports writers are still getting large audiences for anything they write because people are so hungry for some of this. What's your strategy to bring this to our audience in under weird conditions? Yeah, it is going to be weird. Um, one of the great things about baseball is is the pregame access that Hoinsey and Joe Noga, our other Indians writer, get. They before the game, they show up three or four hours before the game, and they get to go into the clubhouse and just hang out with the players. And that's where you get some of your best stuff. You get to build relationships with the players, and all that is gone. And it's it's really going to be fun to see how Hoinsey and Joe kind of. One of the things I've, I've been most proud of this summer is just how creative those guys have been. Uh, in terms of finding things to write about when there have been no games. And I, we're going to just try and take the same creative approach. Uh, the Indians have been great about uh, holding Zoom calls with players over the summer just so the fans can see what they've been up to. And we're just going to have to do everything over Zoom and, and, and working the sources that that Hoinsey and Joe have uh, just to find interesting stuff to write about for the fans. But, yeah, it is, it's going to be completely different. That pregame access is really uh, different. It's what make, makes baseball kind of a different uh, animal when it comes to covering the team. 
So, Paul, you've been doing this for 37 years pretty much nonstop. And I imagine during some of those those years when they were not spectacular, it was a bit of a slog. And you imagine what life might be like with it being away. And now you've had many months of, of experience with it. How much, how much did you miss watching baseball the last few months? You know, I, I missed it, uh, Chris, uh, and I started getting a little stir crazy. You know, I'm uh, sitting, in, <laughs> sitting in my upstairs uh, office, uh, you know, just, you know, my body, my, you know, my body clock was telling me, hey, you've got to be somewhere. You've got to be in Chicago. You've got to be in New York. You've got to be in Detroit, but you're sitting right here. And uh, so that was, I'm still getting used to that, but uh, it's been nice just to be home, you know. And uh, you know, see my grandkids and see my my boys, and uh, so that that's been a good part of it. You did get to see some baseball, though. You and Dave came up with one of the best ideas I've heard this year, where you went out to youth baseball games, bringing all the muscle of your experience and your writing ability to write about eight year olds and twelve year olds and kids playing baseball. And and I got to tell you, the stories were delightful. The the turns of phrase in them. How, how did uh, how did that feel going out to small small diamonds and watching little kids play? Well, that was a blast. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a great idea by Dave. Um, and it, you know, I I I, I got to admit, I was wondering a little bit when I first went out and started doing the stories, but it it turned out to be fun. It just seemed like, you know, just watching the kids play. I think they were so glad to be playing. They thought their seasons was going to were, was going to be canceled because of the virus, and they were out there playing. They were having fun, and uh, it was just it was just cool to see. It was just you know I went to different parts of the city, Greater Cleveland, like Solon, uh, you know Parma, North Olmsted, Chagrin Falls. You know, kind of tried to get a you know a pretty big slice of the pie and. Uh, it was it was really fun. It was, uh, you know, and and there was some good baseball too. But there was but the, there was like a game in uh, Chagrin Falls. I think it was an eight and under. These uh, these little kids were kind of wandering around. The umpire had to uh, tuck their their uniform shirts in. So it was fun. it was funny. What came through in the in the what you wrote was just the joy of the game, which I guess now a lot more people are going to get to experience as we, as we finally uh, get started. So looking forward to where you take us. So thank you, uh, Dave. Thank you, Paul, for joining us on This Week in the CLE. You got it. Have a good one. Thank you. What are the anomalies and unanswered questions about the plan by Cuyahoga County to refinance some convention center loans? I got to tell you, Laura Johnston, when we set out to ask the questions about who was getting the money from this refinancing, I felt like we were just doing it because it's our job, right? We're the watchdog. You just ask the questions, even if the answers are boring. But it turns out, as with anything Cuyahoga County does, it's not boring and it, it's a little bit stinky. So what is going on with this refinancing of the convention center loans? Yeah, this is staggering. Um I was when you said the story over and I read I read it, I was like, not again. We're talking about another questionable financial deal by the county. We haven't even really gotten to the end of the last one dealing with the hotel. But um County Executive Armin Budish's administration used a fifteen month old request 
for qualifications to select a bond council for a new deal. They, they chose Cleveland-based Squire Patton Boggs for this proposed refinancing deal of the convention center. This could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to the firm. But the request for qualifications they used was from April 2019. It was for refinancing bonds for repairs to Progressive Field and Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. So we totally different facility and, and had no mention of future bond deals in that. And they didn't even pick Square Sanders. Right. That, that's the thing. They did a request for proposals for a bond. They did not pick them. And then when it's time to refinance at the low interest rates, they don't do a request for proposals. They go to an old one and they pull them out. I mean, it's just, yeah. What was interesting is, is I sent a note out on my text message account, the free text message account I send to people about what we're thinking about. And I said, you know, we're asking these questions. We're just the watchdog. And a whole bunch of people came back and said, we're really glad you're doing this. You know, you, you can never trust government. Just watch them, watch them, watch them. And I expected this to be nothing. I could not believe when Courtney Astolfi's story came across. Her editor, Mark Bosberg, sent it to me yesterday. And my jaw was in my lap. With all of the anomalies that go on in Cuyahoga County government, why not just do a request for proposals? There's no rush. Interest rates aren't going up anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And instead, it raises a stink. Why did you do this? You know, it, I, it just we'll have to see. And of course, they're not answering those questions. They're they're you know, we got the data because it's public record and they have to give it to us. But we don't have a straight answer on why they did it this way. And I'm not I'm not saying Squire Patton is not qualified to do it. I'm not saying that whatever underwriter they pick to handle the bonds is not qualified. I'm saying that there is a process in government that that is supposed to make us feel like we can trust them. And right. so far this year, they've done no bid contracts. They've I mean, it's just it's just stinky. And so once again, the administration of Armin Budish which is under investigation by the attorney general's office for stinky deals is doing a stinky deal. And it just boggles the mind. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the Cleveland police commission formed as a result of the consent decree with the Cleveland police pushing for the U S attorney to launch a new investigation of the Cleveland police involving the May 30th riot. This was a late breaking story on Thursday and another bit of a jaw dropper, Laura Johnson. What is going on with this one? Yeah, so this came through our, our crime editor passed it over that uh, there was a tweet from the Cleveland Community Police Commission, which was formed as part of the consent decree. Um, the last time the Justice Department got involved and the idea was they formally asked the Justice Department to open the civil rights investigation into the way law enforcement agencies agencies handled that May 30th demonstration that they fought. They, they launched the pepper spray and the chemicals without a, a reason. Um, and this is the stuff that Corey Schaefer has been, um, our reporter, Corey Schaefer, has been pushing so many times and actually the commission's letter references media outlets and really then links to like six of Corey's stories. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's like, to make it sound like all of the media is doing this. I mean, it's been kind of frustrating that no other media is doing this. This is like the biggest issue in the city other than the coronavirus. And we're the only ones paying attention. It makes no sense to me. But but at least they recognize the work we're doing right. raises questions. You know, we still get hear from people all the time. You hate police. You hate police. Like, no. We don't have police, but we do think police should not be wantingly attacking the citizenry, and neither do they. I mean, they, they clearly want this. Here's the problem. Under Donald Trump, there are no investigations of police. He's 
pretty much ended all of those kinds of things. And this letter is going to U.S. Attorney Justin Herdman, who is spending a lot of his time chasing down the looters and the rioters and not really (laughs) looking at the at the police side of this at all. So we'll have to get an answer from him. But I, I don't expect the commission's going to get a positive result. But, you know, if uh, Trump is not reelected and a new president comes in and they start investigating police use of force again in the Justice Department, they could always bring this request back come January. Well, and Adam Faris talked to two of the commission members and we didn't get a response from Justin uh, from the Herdman's office, but um, they said they expected the letter to get a little more traction here in Cleveland than it would in D.C. They said they had faith in the leadership here. Um, and I mean, they have very specific issues to bring up, like the 24 year old who got beamed in the face with a beanbag round and lost an eye. I mean, those are not small things. We have very specific issues to point to. And the the letter refers to multiple incidents of excessive force, unconstitutional policing, and other civil rights violations. And they say that this complements the, the past investigation and that this is their job to keep the police honest. Look, what we've seen in the video, this isn't just he said, she said. The video no. shows it. It's irrefutable. It's crimes. I mean, if I did this to anybody, I'd be charged with aggravated assault. I mean, it's just if I took your eye out, aggravated assault. That the problem with that is that's a state charge. So that's county prosecutor Michael O'Malley should be pursuing that and not getting the indication anybody is chasing that down. But we've had a number of videos. We had the guy trying to walk into his apartment building where there's a line of riot gear clad police just firing pepper spray balls at him randomly. It's just Mm -hmm. firing away and he's done nothing to bring that on. Again, that's an assault case. That's a crime. I do that to you and you go to the police. I'm going to be arrested and tried for that. But but Justin Herdman doesn't investigate those kind of crimes because they're not federal crimes. What he can handle is a civil rights violation. And that's why they're asking for it. What's interesting is they they asked for the same kind of investigation that led to the consent decree. That was a big investigation. Mm -hmm. It took a better part of a year so. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens. It's uh, It was an interesting moment. This also came right after the police monitor in the consent decree basically said the city of Cleveland is not working with this police commission. They're doing the bare minimum, but they are not seeking to work with the community on police reform. So to see the police commission show some backbone here and try to make a difference Maybe maybe some independence will develop and we'll get some actual oversight. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who is Cleveland's new Catholic bishop? Since I've been in town, it seems like we've had a, quite a few bishops. We had Pilla and we've had Nelson Perez and we've had Brennan. Uh, Nelson Perez was relatively new. Everybody loved the guy. And then he was made archbishop of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, where he's from. So it's understandable. And yesterday came word of who our new bishop is for the 700,000 Catholics in the Cleveland Diocese. What do we know about him, Laura Johnston? So we don't know a whole lot yet, but this is Most Reverend Edward Edward Malisic. And I don't know that I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's currently bishop of the Catholic Diocese of Greenberg, Greensburg, Pennsylvania, which I literally had never heard of and had no idea they had their own bishop see. I don't even know what the right word for that is. But <laughs> and you're, a, and you're like Catholic a super and Catholic, I, man. I can't believe you don't get super this right. Catholic. You're the Catholic school kid. I, I just that, went what, to what, PSR. What, what, and what, what does most reverend mean instead of just reverend or or 
you know, Edward. You don't know. Okay. I don't know. So, so he was born in Harrisburg, and I actually right, worked exactly. for three years in Harrisburg. And the uh, the our, my counterpart at at the um, advanced local outlet in Harrisburg, Penn Live. I checked with her yesterday, and and she said, you know, they've heard good things. They actually sent us a quote from a, a local uh, priest the- who had many good things to say about him. So, so it's interesting, but he, he, what was interesting too, is in his introduction to greater Cleveland, he kind of focused on a couple of nagging problems that the, the, the Catholic church has had and how he wants to focus on them. I mean, one's much more than a nagging problem. It's been a devastating problem, but one, the the nagging problem is there's not enough youth coming into the church. The huge problem is the credibility they've lost because of all the priests that have abused youth, which may explain why youth are coming into the church. So, so what did he have to say about that? He said that he, he, I mean, he took the issue of priests um, abuse very seriously. And he said that he thinks that the church's current policies do not tolerate abusive priests and that treat them the same as lay people accused of the same crime. Cur- uh, children are encouraged to talk to, to adults about anything that makes them feel uncomfortable. Parents are educated about how to report abuse to police. I know that my kids are in the PSR program, the Parish School of Religion, and every year there's one Sunday that they have to go through, you know, age-appropriate talks about about this issue. And uh, you can opt out if you want to as a parent, but they talk to kids about what to do if they feel uncomfortable and what's right and what's wrong and consent. And so I, I feel like they've been pretty forward on this. Obviously, it's an issue that's not completely gone. Um, but he did. He acknowledged it head on. And he also said that he wants to reach out to young people in the church, that they need to be part of the growth of the church. Otherwise, the church shrinks and they're gone. It, it's we just I don't feel the same fanfare right now that we felt when Bishop Perez came in. He was the first Spanish speaking Hispanic priest um, bishop, I believe, Cleveland had ever had. And there was a lot of excitement. And maybe it's the coronavirus. Maybe it's everything right now. But um We'll we'll learn more about uh, the most Reverend Edward when he gets well, here. He, he is a Steelers fan. Yeah, he made way. a huge mistake. He came in and he said, "I want to bring my my towel." He needs to renounce Terrible that the towel. way Catholics <laughs> renounce Satan. I mean, that's just not going to fly in uh, in Cleveland. I renounce the Steelers and all their evil works. Right? It's just, let's get that out there. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did the brand new food service provider for the Cuyahoga County Jail? bring contraband to the inmates. I, when this story rolled across yesterday, I, I was, know. Another I was like, wait, 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 wait. We just got the contract for the new food service provider. And, and our research showed that they had had some problems. But I mean, they just started weeks ago. Could they really be bringing contraband in? Now, it's just an investigation and it's they might be involved. But wow, how, how fast could that have happened? I know that. So the county just approved this contract, a $9 million contract with Trinity Food Services Group in June. That was eight months after they tabled discussions on the vote because of these news reports of issues the company had had at other jails. Trinity at the time sent us a lengthy list of rebuttals of some of the news reports, but they didn't talk to us Thursday. Now, to be clear, Adam Faris wrote this story. He checked, and I love the story. It basically says over and over again, like, that the spokeswoman for the county could not give any more details. So the sheriff is investigating contraband in food, maybe in food services, maybe with Trinity, maybe with county workers. But literally, that's all we know about. No, no, it. we so, got one. We got one other detail. 
the investigation started on Friday. Okay. So there you go. Right. Everything you need to know. I mean, <laughs> look, it's a, I get it. It's a criminal investigation. And so when those things are starting, they, they generally don't reveal the details because it could hurt the investigation. I just was stunned that it was a food service provider because Adam did some work. I, I think it was Adam in the beginning that said in other states, there've been serious questions about this, this company. So maybe it's not them. We'll have to wait and see, but, but that was an eye popper. Another Cuyahoga County government problem this week in the CLE. Is a new virus going to wipe out all of the rabbits hopping around Northeast Ohio? This is a really sad story, Laura Johnston. When it, when I uh, asked to, to do a local version because of what's happening elsewhere in the nation and the world, you know, I, what I keen on is it's wiping out 70% of the rabbit population. Uh, and the only thing scientists say is, well, we're going to have to count on rabbits' reputation for prolific breeding to repopulate quickly, but, but what's going on and when can we expect to see this hit our rabbits? I do not know exactly when it's going to hit our rabbits. It's in Southwest uh, United States right now, but it is spreading. It's called rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus serotype two or RHDV two for short. I'm just going to call it the disease at this point, Uh, but it's a, it's a fatal disease. It affects both wild and domestic rabbits. What's interesting is it was here in 2018 in domestic rabbits, but now it's back and it's in wild rabbits. And it causes rabbits to die suddenly, often with no signs except for blood on their noses. So you could just end up seeing a bunch of dead rabbits. There's a couple other symptoms, but with wild rabbits, it's not like you're taking their their temperature to see if they have a fever. Um, and this is it, it isn't just going to be rabbits because think about all the things that prey on rabbits: um, eagles, hawks. Um, lynxes, fox, coyote, all of those could be affected. Um, I don't I don't think they can get the disease if they eat one of these dead rabbits, but the the food source is going to go down. Yeah, what 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 I read was is that the eagle and the and the coyote populations dropped precipitously when this struck. What what I I think it was New Yorker, don't hold me to it, but I think New Yorker did a big takeout on this thing and how it first showed up at an animal clinic in New York and one mm-hmm. rabbit died, which was odd. They didn't know why, but then another one died right after and they realized, oh, this disease that started in Asia and has been and elsewhere is in this country. And they were working to contain it. But once it leapt to the wild rabbit population, which they think was inevitable, it's going to sweep the country. I mean, there's nothing, there is no vaccine. There's no way to stop it. Uh, it's coming. It And the, the, in our rabbit population, they say there's enough genetic diversity where not all of the rabbits die, that there's a percentage of them that live and so they can repopulate. But out west, where they have smaller populations of subspecies, they could go because they don't have the, the diversity. It's just going to be sad because I think all of us see rabbits running around our yards. I heard from some gardeners who are, who are not all that upset about losing some rabbits, but I think most people... I don't know, they're, they're these cute little innocuous creatures that bounce around in our yards and, and they're all going to go. And, and with the eagle population in Northeast Ohio soaring because we're seeing so many and that was a pun, uh, that's, that, could, <laughs> that could be hampered. Or, or you could see them going after cats and kittens and, you know, you could see coyotes if they get hungry, become a little more aggressive with cats and dogs in the neighborhoods, which is a little bit scary because... They're wild creatures. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Ohio's chief justice of the Supreme Court promising to make a big step in bringing fairness to the justice system for everyone, including people in poverty? Justice for all has been our our chant now for four years plus. We've been pushing for justice reform. We've seen it move very slowly in Cuyahoga County, but it is moving. The chief justice is a big proponent of it. And she made a statement this week that gives some confidence that we'll get somewhere with it. What did she say, Laura Johnston? Yeah, Maureen O'Connor said that creating a statewide sentencing database will be the top priority of her remaining, I think, two and a half years uh, in office. She was speaking as, as this panel discussion at the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. And so the idea is that she's going to collect, well, someone is going to collect all this information and then have criminal justice experts analyze it. The database would contain more than 100 points of information on a defendant, including biographical information. And then judges, prosecutors, and lawyers across the state could access it. And by making all of this accessible and in one area, you could compare sentences of current cases or past cases and make sure they're fair. And you can compare it by ethnicity and race and all sorts of things. There's still people that argue, even though it's completely false, that the justice system is not skewed by race. Getting to finally quantify it across the state by all those factors would prove straight out whether or not there is bias in the court. So this is an important step to pushing for reform. And, you know, I salute the chief justice. She's been banging the drum on this for a while. She doesn't always have the support of her colleagues on the Supreme Court, which is why this year's Supreme Court races are important, uh, because we could get reform-minded people in when we might not have them now. But uh, a salute to her for doing so. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, Laura, well, it's just been you and me for a couple of days other than our, <laughs> our guests. It's a, it's been an interesting conversation. We should have uh, Jane and Chris back next week, but not you. You are taking your time off. That's uh, right. So I hope you're doing something fun. We're going to um, Traverse City and Mackinac in Michigan, and I've never been. So can't go to our, our cottage this year. I know I've talked about that on the podcast before. Border is still closed, but we're taking our masks to Michigan. Your cottage in Canada. Yeah, you can't go back there. Well, that'd be nice. I, uh, I've i spent a good time in Michigan this year. I uh, haven't been up to Traverse City. That's a bit further north, but it's beautiful. Uh, so I hope you get good weather. I mean, we've had some pretty exquisite weather this summer, so I hope it continues. Thank you. Thank you to Paul and Dave for joining us to talk about the Indians. Thanks to everybody that listens to this week in the CLE. We will return Monday. <laughs> <laughs>